The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, good morning, one and all. Good to see you this morning. I'm glad to be back here in this, my uh, home base, <laughs> instead of at home, home, where I was last week. But we, you were well taken care of. I, I watched on the live stream and enjoyed Pastor Odell and uh, the ministry that uh, you had also with Jansen in the evening. That was uh, very good. So welcome this morning to Fellowship Bible Church here and online. We're glad that you're joining us and uh, hope that you enjoy uh, the day today and enjoy the sunshine. It was beautiful out yesterday, wasn't it? I hope you were able to get outside and get some fresh air. I do commend that to you, uh, getting out and uh, just uh, walking or exercising or like we do often, doing some work on the property. It's a great way to get outside and stay healthy and increase your health actually too and uh, get out of the dusty house and breathe some nice fresh air. So we we commend that to you as a, a good way to keep your immune system strong in these days. Let's turn our Bibles to uh, Isaiah, please, this morning. We're in Isaiah in chapter 13 this morning. I'll give you a moment to turn there. You might be familiar with the structure of Isaiah. I'll just explain it again to remind you that uh, chapters 1 through 39, mirroring the first 39 uh, books of the Old Testament, uh, in structure, but in content, uh, it's called often the book of judgment. And so there's going to be a lot of judgment here. Uh, then verses or chapters 40 through 66, the last 27, a book of hope. A book of hope. And those are general descriptions, not uh, exhaustive or in great detail. But we're in that first of those two books, as it were, of Isaiah. Chapter 13. The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a banner on the high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many people. A tumultuous noise of the kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven. The Lord and His weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wait, wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will cause its light, not cause its light rather, to shine. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of His fierce anger. It shall be as the hunted gazelle and as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people and everyone will flee to his own land. Everyone who is found will be thrust through and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children also will be, will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also, their bows will dash the young men to pieces and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. 
but wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels and jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. Remember, that's a judgment on Babylon, a proclamation of coming judgment to the nation of Babylon. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians and chapter number 12. Today is January 10th, is that right? You think so? All day? Well, last we were here in 1 Corinthians was, believe it or not, on the 13th of December. So it's nearly been a month. And I expect you to remember every single thing that I said since that time. I do. No, actually, I'm realistic. I understand. Uh, the, uh, the reason why we have church every week is because we need it every week. We need, we need to be reminded of the things of God. Last time, we were in uh, verses 12 through 26, basically. Um, I had started putting notes together for the remainder of chapter 12, and I uh, just kind of stopped when I ran out of space and said, well, next time we'll have to do. And this is next time. Actually, last week was next time, so I've had this sermon burning a hole in my pocket for a week. And uh, I did some improvements on it and uh, ex- expansions and revisions and all that good stuff. So hopefully it will be, uh, it'll be helpful and uh, good for future reference as well. I should mention I did spend some time also recently uploading uh, to the website in the Bible notes section uh, sermons on 2nd and 3rd John and also Philippians. So most of Philippians and all of 2nd and 3rd John uh, notes are there uh, for you if you want them to, uh, to look at for future reference. But to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're in verses 27 through 31. Let me read those and then go back and review a little bit and then begin our comments on this section. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Hopefully we will get to the end of that section because you're going to hear an interpretation of verse 31 that maybe you haven't thought of before, but I think the grammar bears it out uh, and helps to correct some errors that have been out and about just in kind of general Christendom. But we go back to review. In our previous message, we looked at the main body of chapter 12 and we saw that there are a number of truths that are taught there. And we don't have time to go over all of those again. You have to go back and look at those notes and get those. There are about 20 little statements of truth that I listed out in the first section of those notes. So you have those uh, available to you. But we also saw that the church, starting in verse 12 and 13, is uh, composed or constructed, if you will, by spirit baptism. That spirit baptism is that which identifies a person into the body of Christ. It brings you, when you get saved, immediately into the body of Christ. I mean, you may not have ever heard of a local church before or know that one exists, but when you get saved, you are part of the body of Christ. And therefore, you should also be part of a body of believers, which is a local church. But that is an identifying ministry. It's not a ministry that you feel. Uh, it's not something done inside of you. It's kind of, as some say, a, a forensic or judicial kind of activity of God, among some other things that God does for us of that nature. And then it says in verse 13, we've also been all made to drink into one spirit. There's the experiential side of the Spirit of God coming to dwell into in a believer and uh, being the teacher and minister and, and guide and all of the rest that the believer experiences throughout his and her life. 
So that's spirit baptism. Uh, the church, now notice this. I did write this last time. I wanted to repeat it. The church together is a living thing, not merely a list of names. It is a living dwelling place of God through His Spirit. Okay, It's a living organism. I say it. We are a living organism. We are not merely a list of names. We are a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. And God is building us like you might build brick by brick, cement block by block, a building like this. God is doing that, only the bricks are spiritual bricks. People, souls, spirits. And God's dwelling place is in us as the body of Christ. Furthermore, and this is where the most of chapter 12 dwells, the church is well illustrated by a human physical body with its different and complementary parts. Every part needs every other part to function properly. And no part can dispense with the other parts lest its function be somehow compromised. Now, while I don't agree with the medical, um, kind of common medical knowledge that the appendix is useless, but let's suppose that we did. Yeah, vestigial, right. It's been, uh, it's been evolutioned out of necessity, right? Well, why did God put it there, I ask? And, and people have found it to have a, an important function in the immune system and, and those things. But let's suppose that there are some vestigial organs in the body that can be removed. In the church, there are no vestigial organs. There are no appendices in the church that can be simply cut off and just dispensed with and the rest of the body doesn't feel it, doesn't care about it, doesn't get affected by it. There is no such thing. Every body needs, every part needs every other part for the body to function properly. And the body illustration helped the church in Corinth with two particular problems that it had. The first problem was that some members had an inferiority complex, I called it. I don't know if I should really do as a Christian pastor borrow that from you know psychology, but I did, so uh, we'll have to just deal with it. The inferiority complex is that they wrong-headedly thought that they themselves and their roles were unimportant in the church. You know, they were nothing; they were just eh, run-of-the-mill members, and therefore they were not content with what God had given them in the church. You know, woe is me. I'm not, I'm not an I, so I'm not very important, the hand says. The second problem with the church that the body illustration effectively deals with is the superiority complex. On the other side of the equation, you've got people who say, look at me. You know, I stand up in front every Sunday. Aren't I great? I'm something as contrasted with other members who were nothing. That is likewise a sinful approach to the matter. Both attitudes, on the one hand, discontent with where God has placed me, or on the other hand, despising others, those are both manifestations of self-centeredness. Are you with me? An inferiority complex, a woe-is-me complex, Self-centered. A superiority complex? Look at me. Self-centered. Both are manifestations of that selfish gene that we have been born with and we need to get rid of it. It has no place in the church, Paul is telling them. Every part of the body is needed. Some treated with more modesty, others more presentable. You've got the drill. You've read the passage. We've gone over that. So, we we come then to verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. Verse 27 here ties up the kind of illustration that Paul's been using. Puts a bow on it, if you will. And what he's saying is the people of the church are the body of Christ and so have dual roles. What are their dual roles? Well, there's a corporate role and there's an individual role that they have. You see that? You are the body and members. Okay, You're both things. You have to play the part appropriately in both ways. Individuality, in other words, is not lost 
Okay, listen. The corporate body does not swallow up individuality in the church, but neither is the corporate nature of the church lost to some supposed idea that we can be lone rangers. We all know people who say, I don't go to church. I have my own church. I, uh, I don't associate with them. I don't want organized religion. You know, they'd rather have disorganized religion. Okay, uh, you know, come to a disorganized church then. Fine. The supremacy of the individual is a false doctrine. Is a false doctrine. We have to have both of these truths in, in tension, if you will, in, in uh, agreement with each other. The, the corporate and the individual. You can't ditch the church and you can't ditch the individual. The church is not a commune, on the one hand, but neither are its members lone rangers. We are members of one another. Let me, let me uh, illustrate that with a biblical passage in Romans 12 and verse 5. Paul says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The Apostle Paul seems to be able to hold these two ideas together. Individuals, members, in other words, and one body together. We have to be able to, to, to hold that. Uh, you know, today the common idea is, uh, is a kind of a socialist, communist idea. You know, you've heard it on the radio even in commercials. It's not so much about me, it's about we. The, the, the communal idea is, is trying to take over and put us all into to, to communities instead of emphasizing individuality. We have to have both. It's me and we together in the church and also in the society. And when you err on one side, or err, should I say, on one side or the other, you're going to have some kind of problem. It's just inevitable in the church and in the society. Um, so, you have the corporate and you have the individual. And he says you're members individually, members of one another. Membership in the church is not merely about being on an official list. It's not just a, a roll of names. It's about the diversity of parts and function in the church, chapter 12, verse 14. It's about unity in the church, chapter 12, verse 20. It's about caring for one another, 12.25. It's about partnership, sharing in grief and in joy, 12.26. It's about loving one another, chapter 13. And it's about edification. That's what membership in the church is all about. It's not a name on a list. It's a person in a body. A person in a body. That is clear from the text of Scripture and we need to heed to that word. Now, in verse, that's 27. 28, the Apostle takes some time to list or delineate some Spirit-given gifts. And we want to just go through these. It might be a little bit painful because there's a list of them. And whenever there's a list, then how do you, you, know, how do you spice that up? You just have to go through it. If you're going to if you're going to be faithful to just preach the whole counsel of God, which we want to do. We know first that these gifts that are listed, he starts with apostle and ends with tongues in verse 28. These gifts are the abilities and they're closely associated with the office that a person would hold in the church, a position or an office or a role. Sometimes people make a big deal about, you know, the, there's the office and there's the gift and they, they try to... Keep those two things separate and it's just too confusing. For our purposes, I know there is a distinction, but for our purposes, we're going to just leave that distinction behind. We're going to wash it out on purpose and we're going to recognize that that distinction is somewhat flattened out by the recognition that a person who's in an office like a pastor has to have the pastoral gift. If he doesn't, then he's not going to be serving God and he's not going to be really a pastor or, or, or he'll be ineffective. Um, so the pastor has to have the gifts. The deacons must have those gifts of, of helps and, and service and administration or whatever other gifts that God has given to them. But they come together. You know, they have to because God doesn't give gifts just 
you know, out there under a Christmas tree. He gives gifts to individual people in the church, specifically. And that's why we can't be, you know, have this inferiority complex or the superiority complex. God gave what He decided to give, and that's what He's done. Now, the gifts are listed in an order here. I want you to notice this. For some reason, the Apostle Paul puts the gifts in order. He says first, then second, then third. You notice that in verse 28? Then after that. And then the word then. So five ordering words here indicate an order of importance. Now we've noted this before, but the order of them has to do with their ability to edify the body of Christ. Gifts were ranked here listed in an, in an order of importance for edification. Not an order of importance of the people who hold the gift. Not the order of importance of how showy the gift is or how much fame it brings to the person who is assigned it and exercising it. Um, but the edification value of the gift some of the gifts like tongues and interpretation would eventually fall away and become unnecessary in the life of the church. And then verse 29, Paul gives a list of the gifts once again. And here he repeats most of them, but he leaves out a couple and adds one at the end. So we'll look at those in the list here in letter C in the notes, which is, should be on page 2 uh, of your set of notes there printed uh, off on the computer or on the screen. Now, we've seen this list, some of these before in chapter 12, verses uh, 4 to 11. Uh, the scripture talks about first here apostles. God has appointed these in the church. First apostles. Now, there are no apostles today. Let's just be clear about that. An apostle was a man who was specially chosen by Jesus as a personal representative of the Messiah, he was guided into all truth by the Holy Spirit so he could preach the New Testament portions that were assigned to him or write them, in fact, you know, to write them down. Actually, they, you know, we often associate that with the writing of the New Testament, but remember, the New Testament was not completed for over 60 years. Some of it, most of it was not written for 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. So, these apostles had to be guided into all truth long before three decades was out so that they could be leading and teaching the church and setting it in order as God had commanded. So you have the requirements of an apostle listed in Scripture. He was one who personally witnessed the baptism of Christ, his whole ministry, up to his resurrection and saw the resurrected Jesus. And he was able to authenticate his ministry by certain signs of an apostle. And those would include miraculous things like uh, healings or raising someone from the dead. And if you did that, then you would be authenticating, hey, I am uh, the, the kind of person that is an apostle. Now, nobody, nobody meets these requirements today. So there are no apostles in, in any church, anywhere, on the face of the earth. And I can say, you know, in this age, and in tribulation, there will never be any such people because nobody can meet these requirements. Secondly, he says, there are prophets. Prophets. A man or a woman who received and proclaimed new revelation from God. And I, I said man and woman because I think that's true. You have in Acts chapter... Oh, what is it? Uh, seven. Oh, I'm going to mess up the address. But anyway, you have Philip, the evangelist. You have his daughters who prophesied. You have Agabus, who was a prophet. The apostles were all kind of prophets uh, just by default because they proclaimed the truth of God, new revelation, and, and old revelation as well. Likewise, there are no prophets today. Um, now, a Bible expositor, say me, could be called a prophet because I'm proclaiming Reproclaiming earlier divine revelation. I'm repeating, or as some have said, I'm a reporter. You know, don't shoot the messenger kind of thing. If 
you don't like the message, deal with the, the guy who sent the message, but not the messengers. But because of confusion with the miraculous idea of receiving new revelation, it's better not to use the term prophet today. Uh, use a teacher, pastor, herald, evangelist, or some similar term, uh, proclaimer, that does not have the charismatic baggage with it uh, of the word prophet. Thirdly, what's the third on the list? Teachers. Now we're going in order of edification value. Now, we've said we don't have apostles. We don't have prophets today. So, what are we left with? Teachers. People who are gifted by the Spirit of God to take divine truth and convey it in an understandable way, a way that is applicable to life. This is the primary gift of edification that God has given to the uh, church. There's also the gift of evangelist, which is similar. It's not listed here, but it is in, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 and verse 11, which is the ability to take specifically the, the divine truth of the gospel and present it in a clear and persuasive way to those that do not know the Lord. And so kind of in this realm of teacher and evangelist, you have some who specialize in the first. I would consider myself in that uh, department. And others who specialize in the second, in evangelism. And you perhaps know some people who uh, fall into that category. Uh, So the teaching gift is the primary gift of building up the church like that's here today. And the evangelism gift is the gift primarily used to build up the church in terms of bringing new people in to it. Okay? Then you have miracles. God gave some people the ability to do miracles to build up the church, to authenticate the church's ministry, and perhaps to protect or provide for it. This is not given today again by the Spirit. Now, this does not mean, when I say this, be clear, when I say that God does not, this gift of miracles is not given, this doesn't mean that God does not or cannot do miracles today. Of course, He can. He has the inherent ability. Uh, yeah, regeneration is the most common miracle that God works, and would to God that it would be more common than it is. But does God offer other kinds of miracles? Yes, perhaps, but we don't know for sure or can assign you know, you know, 100% certainty to the fact that, well, that person's healing was definitely a miracle. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was some combination of strange circumstances or their body's immune system, God strengthened and used other means, whatever. Um, but God does can, and can do miracles today, but He does not give the gift to an individual. With that, that clar- I hope that clarifies what we're talking about. You know, some people say, what do you mean God can't do a miracle? I never said God can't do a miracle. I said God has chosen not to give the gift of miracles to an individual so that, you know, I can just, you know, zap somebody and, and point to something and do something. I can't do that. Okay? And you know what? We need to recognize that what God has given to us is his measure of what he thinks we need. That, you know, if he's given you a certain amount of resources, that's what he wants you to have. If he's given you certain gifts, that's what he wants you to have. He's given this church certain people and say we don't have, you know, somebody like church X does down the street that can do Y. Well, we just have to be content with what God has done for us and to us. Be happy with what God has done. Be joyful. Another gift, the gift of healings is listed next. This is analogous to miracles, not given today. Uh, Sometimes this would include the um, exorcism of demons. In fact, our brother was asking about a question in Matthew 17 yesterday about that uh, issue of uh, demon removal. Was it a health issue? Was it a demon issue? Well, there it tells us it was a demonic oppression on a young boy that was healed by the Lord Jesus but uh, we, don't, we can't tell that today. We don't have any way of diagnosing it. Uh, but that gift of healing and exorcism, also not gift, uh, given today. Does that mean God doesn't heal? Absolutely not. God heals people through secondary means all the time and perhaps sometimes through miracles. And uh, He is able to do that as He pleases. Now, we're, we're rolling on down through verse 28. You have miracles, gifts of healings. There's helps. 
helps. I have a short description of this, but it's a big gift. It's a general word. Words refers to a gift of service in all kinds of capacities. Some people have the desire and the ability to help others and are especially fulfilled in pursuing the helping of others. There's nothing wrong with having a good feeling about helping somebody. You know, as long as it doesn't make your head go like this, you know. Be thankful, be glad that you can serve God with helps. Uh, Maybe you have more financial resources than you need or more time than you can spend on yourself or whatever it is you can use to serve other people. And you, you observe you know, a situation and you say, hey, I, there's a need there. I can fill that need or I can help get that thing accomplished, whatever it is. That's helps. Very broad gift. I would venture to say that many people in this church have that gift, whether they're using it or not is another matter. Okay? But many of us have that. There are some teachers, no, no apostles, no prophets, no miracles, no gifts of healings. Many have helps. What about number seven on our list? Administrations. Administrations. That's a long word, a mouthful. This refers to people who have been given the ability to lead and organize or coach People. There's certain people who can help others to get moving in a unified direction. You know people like that? Perhaps you are one of such persons who can do that. They help marshal the resources to accomplish a large task. They might be forward thinking or be able to see the gap from where we are to where we need to be or very entrepreneurial in their mindset or, or have a special way of thinking with clarity about what's important today. Like, you know, no, that's really not what we need to be focusing on because the main issue is this. We need to take that issue and deal with it right now. This can wait. Um, Perhaps they have an ability to encourage other people to carry on in the work or sometimes folks in this leadership and administration classification of gifts can handle technical matters with skill. Uh, They know how to deal with, say, numbers taxes in our context. You know, they can deal with that sort of stuff and, and work through it. Then there is, uh, last in verse 28, tongues. Also not given today. This gift was a gift in which people could instantly learn and speak a foreign language, a real foreign language, with a real usefulness in communication in the world. It's not gibberish. It's not ecstatic. It's not heavenly. It's not angelic. It's a real human language. Today, language must be learned the hard way. Oh, how I wish it weren't so. You know, I have one particular language that I would like to learn, uh, you know, very quickly and very well, but uh, that's not the case. There are people that are gifted with linguistic abilities and interests, but they still have to put the work in to learn and to practice the language. There are some, look it up sometime, you see some videos about folks that are just prodigies in language learning, very few and far between. Uh, There's a certain word for that, I just forget it now. Poly, uh, what's that? Polyglot. Polyglot, that's right, thank you, yep. Many-tongued, I guess it kind of resolves down to, yes. But a very interesting kind of linguistic ability that certain people have. But they still have to learn the language. Um, Then you have the gift of interpretation of tongues. And since tongues is uh, not given today, so also interpretation isn't either. And interpretation is an interesting gift because it, it gated or... Um, restricted the use of the tongues gift. How? Because in the church, Paul said, if you don't have somebody to interpret, even if you have the gift of tongues, button it. Because if you talk in another language and people don't understand what you're saying, what revelation from God you're giving, what new or old information you're repeating, it's going to have zero edification value. So it becomes evident then that the list is ordered by edification and these gifts at the end have very low edification value and are not needed. 
The gifts at the head of the list, high edification value, in particular the first two, apostle and prophet, but they don't need to be given anymore because God has re- reduced his revelation to writing. It's static and it's done. So those are the gifts, nine of them. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's, uh, it does represent a lot of what God has given over the course of church history and also today. But now verse 29 and verse 30. The distribution of the gifts happens in a diverse manner. The diversity of the distribution of gifts. The Apostle Paul now applies what he illustrated earlier with the human body. Namely, he uses, and you have to understand this. If you don't get this, you miss the whole point of verses 29 and 30. He uses rhetorical questions to explain that not everyone has the gifts that he lists. Now, he could have said in verse 29, he said this, are all apostles? He could have totally equally said, not everybody is an apostle, buddies. You know, not everybody is an apostle. That rhetorical question makes a statement. That's what a rhetorical question does. Are you with me? Because, and I'm going to, you'll see why I'm making a point of this. Are all prophets? No, not all are prophets. Are all teachers? Well, let's just, just think about this. If I were to put all your names in a hat right now and reach in there, shuffle them all up, pick one name out, and I say that name is the person that has to teach the Bible next Sunday, would that be a good way of That'd be a scary way for some of you. (laughs) Probably not, right? Not everybody's a teacher. Clearly not. You don't have that um, interest. You don't have the desire, the ability. The your your mind doesn't think that way, and that's fine. Your mind thinks a different way, and God has assigned you that. That's cool. That's just how it is. But you can't tell somebody, look, if you don't teach, you're not a Christian. Uh, let me keep going through the list here. Are all workers of miracles? <laughs> certainly not. Do all have the gift of healings? Again, certainly not. Do all speak with tongues? Even when the gift of miracles, healings, and tongues were given, not everybody had them. Much less today when they're not given at all. Do all interpret? No, clearly not. So if someone were to require you to exercise any particular one of these gifts to demonstrate that you're a saved person, then you would know... You know who I'm talking about already? You would know immediately that such a person is a false teacher. You don't even have to just just stop. False teacher, done. If somebody requires you to speak in tongues to show that you're saved, done. End of story. It's a false teaching. It's a false teacher that's doing that to you. Most believers throughout the course of church history could not or did not have most of the gifts on this list to begin with, even from day one of the church. Some, some today are gifted at teaching and administration, and many have the gifts of helps. I've already kind of exhorted us that some aren't exercising our gifts much at all, even, even, even if you know what they are. But saying if you're saved, you must heal, you must be an apostle, you must speak in tongues, that's a false Teaching. Let's be clear. That's not a Christian teaching. That's a false teaching. It's not a biblical teaching. It's an unbiblical teaching. Salvation does not come by the reception or demonstration or manifestation of certain gifts. Salvation comes through a person truly repenting and believing in the gospel of Christ. Period. That's what we mean when we say salvation comes by faith alone, not by speaking in tongues, not by exercising some other particular gift. Now, certainly... Certainly, yeah, there's another one, uh, baptism in the Spirit. And, it's, and then it's, uh, you know, exhibition in speaking in tongues. And that's all it is, by the way, an exhibition. It's not a real spiritual gift. But certainly the transformation wrought by God inside of your heart issues forth in works. It issues forth in a transformation of life, in a change. It yields good works. But the manifestation of a particular gift by a believer is an unbiblical requirement that is added to Scripture and invalidly so. 
Now finally, verse 31. Paul says this, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. The apostle wants the believers not to seek self-aggrandizement, but rather, what does he want them to seek? Talked about it before. Starts with an E. It means to build up. It's edification. That's what he seeks. Not to build up yourself or puff up yourself, but to build up the church, the body of Christ. The problem in Corinth was they were showing off and wanting to be well-known in the church. And by saying, earnestly desire the best gifts, Paul was not telling them to keep going down the wrong path that they were on. If they wanted better gifts, better in in terms of more upfront, more flashy, more showy, that's not what Paul wanted them to seek. So he can't be telling them that. We know that for sure. Such a selfish approach to wanting gifts for their self-aggrandizement does nothing for the health, strength, and growth of the church. What God desires is that His assigned abilities be exercised in grace and in the power of the Spirit to build up the body. Now, most people, I think, would not read it the way that I've alluded to it just now. In other words, what I've said just now is, Maybe the Corinthian problem was they were wanting these gifts, but they were wanting them for the wrong reason. Other people will say, just kind of, not say, but just understand when they read this, earnestly desire the best gifts. Okay, so what does that mean? That means whatever gifts that I have, I need to seek the next better one for edification of the church. Okay? That's, that part's correct, but I don't think it's correct to think I need to seek the next better gift. And let me explain why that is. God has already decided the gifts that you're assigned. For example, and this is a prayer that a very famous and prominent pastor has made somewhat publicly. He has said, Lord... Please give me the gift of tongues. A very famous pastor has done this. I'm not going to share a name at this pulpit right now. That is a sad prayer. That is a sad prayer. Why? First of all, God doesn't give tongues today. You're not going to cajole and pray and ask God to give something that He's told you He's not going to give. 1 Corinthians 13 is clear. Tongues have ceased. We'll look at that next week or the week after that. It's out of place not only because it's not given today. I'm saying the prayer is out of place. But God has already given you all the gifts that you need to work in this life. You're simply required to use them. I find no biblical evidence to justify that the gifts given by the Spirit morph over time or that He gives you additional gifts uh, throughout the course of your life. Let me reiterate this. The cor- what I'm saying here is this is not an individual seeking of gifts. This is a corporate seeking of gifts. This is you all, second person plural, you all desire, earnestly, zealously desire the best gifts. All of you together as a church. And I'm going to explain what that means just now. Okay, So hold on if you don't quite get it yet. This corporate seeking of the gifts completely undercuts the I pray for tongues kind of thought process. That idea of I want tongues or I want whatever, you know, I'm, I want to be I want to be a teacher just like the pastor of the church is. This reveals a, a level of selfish discontent with where God has placed you in the church and how He is using you. If God has not given you a certain gift yet, and you have been in the faith for some years, it's pretty much certain that He's not going to give you that gift now. In fact, well, we've said this, He never gives the gift of tongues today. Whatever, whatever, be that as it is. You are called to be content with the gifts that God has already given to you. And not only to be content with them, but to use them. <laughs> See? But to use them. Now, what does it mean then if it doesn't mean, you know, 
you know, Paul's not telling you, look, level, ask God to level up your gift. You know, go from one level to the next. No. Corporately, the desire is that we are hoping God will send us people who are able to do certain things that we cannot already do. The desire here is that God would activate people already in the church who are not presently using their gifts. The desire is for the church to excel in the operation of all of its gifts so that it can excel in holiness and progress for the glory of God. It is not... Here's the thing. This desire, when Paul says, earnestly desire the best gifts, is not... God, give me a greater gift so I can be more famous in the church. No, it is this. God, give us, us, greater gifts so that we can honor you better. Do you see the difference? I'm not looking for, you know, everything I don't have. Because the grass is greener over there. You know, everything's wonderful. No. It's, I have to use the gifts that God has given to me and show God a level of contentment and thanksgiving at how He has assigned my lot in life in the church. And we then ask God to bring us more gifts by more people coming in or more people being raised up and activated in the church that will edify the church better than it is already. Okay, so let's suppose we don't have a lot of people in the assembly that we know who are gifted at evangelism. But we need that. You might pray to God that God would raise up a number of people in our church who would find, oh wow, I can actually share the gospel in a simple way with friends and family and they can understand it. That's a gift. Or that God would help us to find some young persons or older people out in the community that aren't saved, you know, if you need resources, where do you get them from in the church? You get them from the harvest. Church planting class beat this into our heads. The resources for the church are in the harvest of the church. You get that idea? You go out and you find new, you bring people in. You don't know. Right today you're saying, look, we have X, Y, and Z in the church. In five years, we could have every pew filled, COVID gone, thankfully, and we have a bunch of people with a whole bunch of different, a complement of gifts than what we have had up until now. Earnestly desire the best gifts. Why? Why? Because the gifts are for edification. Some gifts are better than others because of their value and edification. Now, Members with those gifts are not more valuable. Let's be clear about that. Some gifts are more valuable. The people that have them are not more valuable because all members are necessary. Rather, certain gifts are better because they have a more potent or widespread or visible edification power. And spiritual gifts are measured by that edification power or value. The spiritual profit that they give to the church is the true metric by which they must be evaluated. You know, more public gifts are not automatically better because they somehow, you know, seem to puff up the minister. The real measure of the gift is how much spiritual profit is gained by the members when you are ministering your gift in the church. Let me just give a concrete illustration of that. My most, my ministry here is one thing. And you might think, well, pastor has the most influence in the church and he teaches the Bible the most and blah, blah, blah. But there might be somebody in this church, any of us, who come alongside a brother or sister from time to time and say a word in due season that has more impact than what I can have in five hours of preaching because it just it hits the spot. You know, I mean... 1 Corinthians 12. Does that hit the spot this morning? You know, some of you already were full this morning. And I'm just packing it down your gullet. You know, fitting it into your stomach. Uh, But you could have that kind of edification value and you don't even know it. Maybe. Maybe you do. I encourage you in the exercise of those things. And that's one of the things that Jansen and I were speaking about and wanting to cultivate in our church in 2021. 
that is the individual member ministry, one-on-one kind of ministry. You don't know what kind of effect you could have. The world could see... The, I mean, forget that for a moment. Just thinking of somebody... You know, I'm thinking of somebody you come alongside and you encourage them to higher heights of spiritual development. Or perhaps you lift them out of the depths of depression and save their life because of what you say to them and how you encourage them. You don't know. But you have to exercise your gift. And our church needs to seek the best gifts and the best operation of those gifts. So as we close, God emphasizes to us that the church is a unified body. Each part has a different role in ministry for the building up of the body. This whole idea blows up the clergy versus laity distinction. Are you with me on that? Yeah, people traditionally think of the church as, you know, the priest and the, the, the hoi polloi. You know, he's the real close one to God. That's not the case in this church. That's not what we teach here. There's not a strong dividing line, you know, in front of this pulpit between the class of people that I'm in and the class of people that you're in. There's no class difference at all. Uh, the church is not one minister with many members. It is many member ministers. Member-ministers. That's what you are all. Member ministers. You minister in different ways. You serve in different ways. The body, the church is a body with all of its parts operating. It's an engine with all of its gears turning. It's a biosphere with all of its things living together in harmony and and symbiosis. It's a bustling corporation the church is with every employee scurrying about doing their work to carry out the mission of the organization. And the church is a family where all the members are doing its part. Ephesians and Romans tell us more about this, but we'll stop there and just exhort ourselves with this. What has God appointed you to do in the church? Find your role. Exercise that role wholeheartedly as to the Lord and be satisfied with it. Keep your eyes open for more opportunities to to serve or different ways your gifts can be used in the church or, or for the gift that you didn't even know you already had. Pray that God will bless the church with those gifts that, as He sees fit that we might serve Him faithfully in this coming year. And we'll thank Him. In Jesus' precious name, the giver of all of those gifts. Father, we pray that Your hand will guide us in this matter and that we will recognize the crucial role that we play as the body of Christ and members individually. And We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.